All right, everyone, I have 12.30, so let us begin. Welcome back. Uh, if anybody, if this is your first time, welcome here. We have a call to order. Okay, good. I was wondering, so. <laughs> Always. Um, I want, before we dive into numbers, um, right now in our country is a pretty crazy time. I think we could all agree with that. We have people in this study here from all ends of the political spectrum, and we're seeing uh, a lot's going on. Some people are happy, some people are scared, some people are angry, some people are angry at the other people that are angry, some people are angry because they weren't angry at the last guy, but they're angry at this guy. There's just a lot of, a lot of anger, a lot of division, there's a lot of hurt and pain and, and stuff going on. And sometimes I think that in an effort to keep everyone happy, we don't always like to talk about things that are going on. And obviously we're studying numbers and, and the purpose of this Bible study is to give you a biblical understanding of how God dealt with Israel in their time. So that that informs how you view the world today in our time. And Christians will always come to differing political views on how issues should be handled. But hopefully, as followers of Jesus, the underlying ethic that we're all seeking should be the same. Even if we disagree on how to get there, there should be the same desire. So desire for the well-being of people, the well-being of others, uh, the, the good of our neighbor, whoever our neighbor may be. And so when it comes to issues of politics, then that's where things start to get tricky. And that's where walls quickly spring up between Christians and camps get separated into pro this guy, pro that guy, pro this policy, anti this policy. And it's important, I think, to realize as, as followers of Jesus, we can absolutely have our views on how we think things should be as long as we're always willing to make those views subservient to the gospel and allow the gospel to challenge those views even when we hold them deep. So however that affects your, your view of what's going on in the world, the other thing we should all agree on is that we should be in prayer for our nation and for our leaders. Um, and not a prayer, not, not a not a nationalistic idolatry prayer. Lord, bless our leader. Make him great. Not any of that. Because when Paul and Peter talk about showing respect and honor to those who are due, and Paul talks about fearing the emperor, he's talking about Nero. And Nero was the emperor who would kill both Paul and Peter. So there wasn't this platitude of, you know, just pray because we love him. It wasn't that. It was... Pray because that's what we do and that's what we need to do. And because throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we see is leaders of nations, even pagan evil leaders, can't thwart God's plans. And so it's perfectly biblical to pray that God use the leaders, give them wisdom, 
and, and to use them for good or evil to expose and to bring light into the world. And God called Cyrus his Messiah in the Old Testament. Cyrus was not a good guy. Um, so, again, it's, it's something where we just want to be aware. When the overlap between politics and religion starts to get thorny, knowing the Old Testament to me is a huge advantage. Because it lets us see that God can use people, even those who are against Him. But at the same time that He can use them, He's sending prophets to lay into them and call them out. And so you have this cool dynamic of God using leaders and saying, you're not outside of my reach, but also sending faithful messengers who will come and who will proclaim boldly to those leaders, you are wrong and you need to repent. And that should be the, something that we hold in tension through every administration that rules our country. Uh, because it's not a team game. You know, God doesn't have a, a team that he's rooting for. Uh, he, he, he has, again, the ultimate goal. Every tribe, language, people, and nation all rejoicing around the throne of God of the Messiah. And that begins all the way back here in the Old Testament, as we'll see. So it's just a reminder, because we don't always talk about it. We don't always mention it a lot. I mean, sometimes the issues that we discuss in here do touch on things. Everything from uh, sexual ethics to how immigrants are treated to um, how we conduct or, or advocate for the least of these to how we conduct ourselves in our workplace. I mean, all these issues come up and, and people's toes get stepped on. Somebody's toes are going to get stepped on if they're reading the Bible. If they don't, if you're reading the Bible and you're always like, this is awesome, I agree, I agree. You're probably not examining your own life very carefully uh, because it's got something to say to all of us, myself included. So just keep that in mind, and in the coming days especially, just make it a pledge as followers of the God of Israel to view everything going on in our culture through the lens of Israel's Messiah, not necessarily Uncle Sam or geopolitics or a donkey or an elephant, um, <clears throat> but to really be able to bring God's word prophetically to bear on everything that we encounter, because it's got a lot to say. And so now we're picking back up in numbers where God has, has done a census, an organization of the people. And as we said, he's, he's recreating. See, numbers is a cool parallel to Genesis. And Deuteronomy will be a cool parallel to Exodus. So it's kind of like some recapitulation going on within the Torah itself after Leviticus being kind of the hinge. But God is reforming, reshaping, recreating this, this group of people unguided slaves who have kind of tribal leaders and that's about it and he's grouping them into his mobile army that are going to be his instrument of judgment on these specific nations of the Canaanites that he calls that he mentions and so he's taking them from slaves to the most powerful army in the world at that time and turning them into his army but who will fight not with the weapons of war only but with God leading them. Like, like the, the war that Israel is being prepared for is not like the wars of the other nations. And God will go out of his way to explain that. So he sets out the camp and last week we saw how the camp was arranged and everything was arranged around the tabernacle. The little mini Mount Sinai that goes with them everywhere. It's right in the center. And 
between now. So Israel is going to represent God to the world. Like Israel is the buffer between the nations and God. But within that, there's always these layers. Within that, God's going to call the Levites to be the buffer between God and Israel. So there are priests within a priesthood. There are these uh, concentric circles. And you see that pattern in the Old Testament a lot. And that's kind of how God moves and operates. And there's, there's theological reasons for it that come to bear in the New Testament. But he's going to start now. He, he's, he's, all of the other tribes have been set up and how they're going to be in camp, how they're going to move out to battle, uh, how they're going to be organized. And then he says chapter 3 starts very interestingly. It says, in the NIV, it says, this is the account of the family of Aaron and Moses. In the Hebrew, it says, Ele toledot, uh, Aaron and Moses. This is the genealogy of, or these are the family records, or it's the same phrase that divided the book of Genesis. Like there's like 11 times in Genesis where it starts out with, these are the generations. And it begins in chapter 2. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth. And then it says, and in a few chapters, these are the generations of Adam. And then it goes on down through the line. And then it gets to these are generations of Terah. These are the generations of, and it ends in chapter 37. These are the generations of Jacob. And so what you have is that Genesis through Numbers is presenting God's dealing with the generations of these families. In other words, it goes from a wide span. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth. And it narrows down until it gets to these are the generations of Jacob in particular. So it goes all of creation, then all of humanity, Adam. And then from within Adam, the line that comes to Noah. And then from within that, uh, one of his sons. And then from within that, his son. And, from within, and it gets down to Jacob, the tribe of Israel. So it's delineating. God's, God's promise is weaving its way and going to culminate in a particular people. And now within that people that Genesis ended with, now Numbers uses that phrase. These are the generations of. Uses that phrase to bring the reader's mind back to Genesis and say, the plan is picking back up. And it's focusing even more. Even within Jacob now, it's going to narrow down to the tribes or the people of Aaron and Moses, the, what we would call the Levites. So, the focus is being uh, specified more and more and more. And it'll find its fulfillment in the New Testament when it focuses all the way to uh, Jesus himself, the Messiah, who is all, all of it, who, who draws it all together. He'll be the focal point. And then from there, it'll expand back out into what God's doing, which is every tribe, language, people, and nation. But it says, Eli uh, Toledo, this is the, the generation's of Aaron and Moses at the time the Lord talked with Moses on Mount Sinai. The names of the sons of Aaron were uh, Nadab the firstborn and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Those were the names of Aaron's sons, the anointed priests who were ordained to serve as priests. Nadab and Abihu, however, fell dead before the Lord when they made an offering with unauthorized fire before him in the desert of Sinai. They had no sons. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests during the lifetime of their father Aaron. This harkens back to Leviticus, one of the two narratives we looked at last year in Leviticus. It's chapter 10, the death of Nadab and Abihu, where they, they offered, and it says they offered unauthorized fire. Older translations say strange fire. Uh, the word is the word used to describe who was not to approach 
the tabernacle in Numbers chapter 1. So in Numbers chapter 1, it said the Levites are going to be there and they're going to guard and, and prevent any unauthorized person from approaching God's altar, lest that person be put to death. It's the same word that's used for the fire that Nadab and Abihu offered. So the concept is, God, there's holiness, and then there's things that are authorized to be in the presence of holiness through consecration, anointing, being set apart. So if something enters, if something approaches that's not authorized, then that thing will be destroyed, either by God directly, like Nadab and Abihu, even if they are priests of Israel, even if they are in line to be the next high priest, which Nadab was, uh, you cannot presume on the holiness of God in the Old Testament. This, this, remember, God is not your homeboy in, in the Sinai covenant. Jesus is not your buddy in this covenant. There's a very serious God is ingraining in His people. Yeah, I will one day dwell within you. And yes, I will call you friends. And all of that will be true. But at this point in redemptive history, He is ingraining in His people the concept that don't, do not forget that I am the sovereign God of all the earth. And the fear and the reverence that you had for Pharaoh should be infinitely more for me, the one true king. <clears throat> so he sets this up and, and he gives the overview real quick of these are the priests, uh, Aaron and Moses, Aaron's excuse me, remaining sons are going to serve as the high priests. Verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, bring the tribe of Levi and present them to Aaron, the priest, to assist him. They are to perform duties for him and for the whole community at the tent of meeting by doing the work of the tabernacle. They are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work of the tabernacle. Give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are the Israelites who are to be given wholly to him. Appoint Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Anyone else who approaches the sanctuary must be put to death. Now, the Levites we see here, and some of the translation when it talks about do the perform the duties of the tabernacle. Uh, Jacob Milgram, Jewish uh, commentator on the Torah, one of the most well-known. He's dead now, but um, he's he's argued, and, and pretty much every commentator since has followed suit that 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 concept of performing duties, primarily the Hebrew phrase, has in mind guard duty, perform guard duty. It, it, not just like, you know, carry this shovel and dig this hole and carry, set this tent up. I mean, that's part of it, but the way it's phrased has the connotation of you're on watch. You're guarding this stuff. And that makes sense because the Levites, if you remember, going all the way back, we think of Levites as priests and we think of priests as kind of wimpy and, you know, like, oh, they're not in the army and they're just priests, they're frail. They're this. Levites were the warrior tribe. Back in Genesis, way back, those of you that were here, the massacre at Shechem, who carried that out? Simeon and Levi. And then Jacob pronounced a curse slash blessing over all the sons, and he said about Levi, you're violent, there's violence in you. And then at the Golden Calf Rebellion in Exodus, two years ago, when we looked at that, the, after the people had rebelled and then they repented, but there were still the rebellious people among them, and Moses says, if you're on the Lord's side, here, now, it was the Levites that flocked to his side. And they were the ones who were sent through the camp to put to death those who were continuing in their idolatry. So the Levites, because of that, it's only fitting that they are given guard duty, so to speak. Like they're, 
they're not less tough because they aren't out in the front lines with the rest of the Israelites. If anything, you argue they're tougher because they're the ones standing between God and Israel themselves. So you can kind of picture them, um, I, I don't know, like the royal guard or something. You know, you got your foot soldiers and, and, and the, the forces that are you know, pretty tough. But then like the royal guard are like the best of the best. And they're the ones. Who, so that may be some way that, that makes sense for you. But don't think of the Levites as just running around doing church work entirely. I mean, they're armed guards of God's holiness against Israel. Against Israel, not against the nations. So, God says in verse 11, The Lord also said to Moses, I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites in place of the first male offspring of every Israelite woman. The Levites are mine, for all the firstborn are mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel, whether man or animal. They're all to be mine. I'm the Lord. The Lord said to Moses in the desert of Sinai, count the Levites by their families and clans, count every male a month old or more. So Moses counted them as he was commanded by the word of the Lord. These were the names of the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. These were the names of the Gershonite clans, Libni and Shimei. The Kohathite clans, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, Uziel. The Merarite clans, Mali and Mushi. These were the Levite clans according to their families. So God has said to Moses now, the Levites, basically all the firstborn of Israel are mine. And that's after the Passover, God instituted, hey, you got to redeem all of your firstborn. And, and we looked at that last year in Leviticus and before in Exodus where the firstborn of every womb, every firstborn, whether man or animal, um, would be bought back. From God, so in this symbolic action, you give to the tabernacle uh, a sacrifice, and then that was symbolically God saying, "I will not kill your firstborn." I mean, I do not own your firstborn. In the typical way in the Old Testament times, ancient Near East, it was not uncommon to offer things of great value to the gods, and offer meaning sacrifice to show your devotion. I'll even offer you my most precious thing in this world, which is my firstborn. Um, and God, in a very paradoxical way takes that practice from the pagan world and says yeah that's somewhat true except the killing them part because I don't want child sacrifice I don't want you to sacrifice your firstborn but I want you to know that I am sovereign over the life of your firstborn and so there was that redemption ceremony well again layers within layers God says to Israel you know all of you are mine really and all of your firstborn are mine and instead of me claiming all of your firstborn to work and serve me in my tabernacle, I'm going to claim the Levites as a tribe. The rest of the tribes will be normal tribal life. The Levites are not going to die, but they're going to die to a normal tribal life. They're going to die to land inheritance. They're going to die to agricultural practices. And they're going to die to those things that make up the normal life of Israel so that they can be devoted entirely to serving Israel in my presence. So there's a consecration. There's a separation. This is, this is the concept that would trickle down into the New Testament of the idea. Some people think that it's unbiblical that there's clergy and lay people. That every lay, we're all the universal priesthood of believers. 
Yeah, that's true in the sense that Israel universally were all priests to God as a nation. But within that priestly nation, there were separated, consecrated, set-apart clergy. They were armed clergy. They were the Levites. But they were still set apart specifically for teaching and working in the tabernacle and doing the things of God. So there is precedent for that. God does call some people to full-time vocational ministry on behalf of the body of Christ. And Paul has a lot to say about that in terms of how you honor and how you take care of those people through your tangible giving and providing for their needs as well. Just as the tribes of Israel provided for the Levites. The Levites didn't own land. They didn't have agriculture, animals, all that kind of stuff. How did they survive? Through the offerings. That's what we saw in Leviticus last year. The offerings is how the priests ate. That's where the Levite families got their meals from the offerings of the people. So again, there are parallels in modern churches, and it's not, be careful with people that want to throw out the baby with the bathwater by pointing to a couple of proof texts, because you have to see the big picture and the whole system of what God set up. And in this, he's calling out the Levites. They are going to be on behalf of the firstborn of all of Israel. They're going to serve as the mediators between my presence and the nation as a whole, so that the nation as a whole can be a mediator between my glory and all the earth. That is the concept that carries through to the New Testament as well. Because the ultimate firstborn, the literal firstborn of God, is going to step into Israel's history. And he's going to be, or he's going to do the functions of the priest. He's going to be a priestly king. He's going to stand between and be the intercessor between God and his people. He's going to not just work in the tabernacle, he is going to be the tabernacle which is Jesus. So Jesus, again, tying up all these strands in all the different aspects of the Old Testament in his life. So then, within, we'll just finish out this part. Within, uh, so you've got the Levites, and the Levites are broken up into the four families. Aaron's family, and then the family of the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Mararites. And and they're just like Israel. They're going to be camped on the four sides of the tabernacle. Aaron's family, the priests, camped up front. Not all Levites are priests, by the way. Hopefully you're picking that up. The priests are a special group within the Levites, and they are from Aaron's family. The rest of the Levites are going to be in charge of other duties. So all the Levites are clergy, but not all the clergy are priests, so to speak. So, to Gershon belong the clans of the Libnites and the Shimeites. These were the Gershonite clans. The number of all the males, a month old or more, who were counted was 7 LF 500. Again, that could be 7,500, that could be 7 groupings and 500, that could be 7 groupings of 500. We talked about that a few weeks ago, check the video if you missed it. But the numbers in numbers have a range of meaning and we just need to hold those with loose hands and not be dogmatic on it. The Gershonite clans were to camp on the west behind the tabernacle. The leader of the families of the Gershonites was Eliasaf, son of Lyah. At the tent of meeting, the Gershonites were responsible for the care of the tabernacle and tent, its coverings, the curtain at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the curtains of the courtyard, the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard surrounding the tabernacle and altar, and the ropes, everything related to their use. So these are the, think of the Levites as roadies. Okay? You ever been to a concert? You know that when Bruce Springsteen or whoever comes and plays, they don't just walk into the arena and start singing. Long before they get there, roadies are there setting up. And they do tours. 
So every roadie has their particular thing. I'm the one that sets up the truss. I'm the one that sets up the light. I get the snake cables. I hook up the sound equipment. Every roadie has their duty. And if one of those goes missing or breaks down or there's some communication, it can throw off the whole setup. So it becomes this very ordered process. I did work for a day as a roadie with a um, Christian band that was coming through in college. And, and it was crazy because there was the director and they were like, okay, you pick up that thing and take it there. You pick up that thing and take it there. And if you've deviated at all from the plan, you would hear about it quickly. No, because if one person's not working, then it breaks everything else down. So this is kind of what God's doing in the sense is they're, they're going to be the tabernacle roadies. They've got to set this thing up and take it down everywhere it goes. So every clan, every group had its own thing that they were in charge of. And for the Gershonites, it was the tapestries and the ropes and the things that held it up. Next, to the Kohathite, or to the Kohath belonged the clans of the Amorites, the Izharites, the Hebronites, and the Uzielites. That's, English is weird when we add ites on the end of everything, um, but it just means the sons of these people that were just named. These were the Kohathite clans. The number of all males a month old or more was 8 LF 600. If you're in NIV, there's a footnote there. It's a lowercase b, and it says, you check down at the bottom, it says uh, Hebrew uh, semicolon. Some Septuagint manuscripts say 8,300. Only reason I'm mentioning that is because when you tally up the, the, the numbers at the end and it gives all the numbers, if you tally it up as it's written here, it comes out to 300 more than it should be. But there's a textual variant that your Bible notes and says in old manuscripts it was actually 8,300. And so there's really no contradiction. What happened was one letter got put in between two letters, and that makes it either a 3 or a 6. One letter changes a 3 to a 6. So anyway, that's a nerdy thing. But there are people who get on skeptic websites and pick apart and do contradictions and all this stuff. So just be aware of it and read the footnotes in your Bible because they're helpful. That's why they're there. The Kohathites were responsible for the care of the sanctuary. The Kohathite clans were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle. The leader of the families of the Kohathite clan was Elizaphan, son of Uziel. They were responsible for the care of the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the articles of the sanctuary used in ministering, the curtain, and everything related to their use. The chief leader of the Levites was Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest. He was appointed over those who were responsible for care of the sanctuary. So these are the ones moving the stuff inside, the, the, the implements itself. To Merari belonged the clans of the Malites and the Mushites. These were the Merari clans. The number of all males a month old or more who were counted was six out of 200. The leaders of the families of the Merari clan was Zuriel, son of Abihel. They were to camp on the north side of the tabernacle. The Merites were appointed to take care of the frames of the tabernacle, its crossbars, posts, bases, all its equipment, and everything related to their use, as well as the posts of the surrounding courtyard with their paces, bases, tent pegs, and ropes. So these were the structure roadies. They set up the truss, they set up the framing, and then the others draped the curtains over it, and then the others put the stuff inside it. So everybody's got their plan. Moses and Aaron and his sons are to camp on the east of the tabernacle towards sunrise in front of the tent of meeting. They were responsible for care of the sanctuary on behalf of the Israelites. Anyone else who approached the sanctuary was to be put to death. The total number of Levites counted at the Lord's command by Moses and Aaron according to their clans, including every male, month old or more, was 22 elf. The Lord said to Moses, Count all the firstborn Israelite males who are a month old or more. Make a list of their names. 
Take the Levites for me in place of all the firstborn of the Israelites and the livestock of the Levites in place of all the firstborn of the livestock of the Israelites. I am the Lord. So Moses counted all the firstborn of the Israelites, like all the firstborn in all the tribes, as the Lord commanded him. The total number of firstborn males, a month old or more, listed by name, was 22,273. The Lord also said to Moses, take the Levites in place of all the firstborn of Israel and the livestock of the Levites in place of their livestock. The Levites are to be mine. I am the Lord. To redeem the 273 firstborn Israelites who exceeded the number of the Levites, collect five shekels for each one, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras, give the money for the redemption of the additional Israelites to Aaron and his sons. So Moses collected the redemption money from those who exceeded the number redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the Israelites, he collected silver weighing one, one aleph, or 1,365 shekels, according to the sanctuary shekel. Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons as he was commanded by the word of the Lord. So God said, the Levites are going to be the ones who will redeem all the firstborn of Israel. So they count up the Levites, 22,000. We'll take it as thousands, 22,000. So then they count up all the firstborn of Israel, 22,273. Okay, so there's more firstborn of Israel than Levites. So does that mean we take all the Levites and grab those 273 firstborn and put them into service? God says, no. Instead, take all of those, have them pay five shekels for each one, which was kind of the going rate of a slave in the ancient Near East. And that money that's collected will be what supplies and funds the work of the tabernacle and the things like that, the, the, the logistics. So God does this thing where the purpose theologically still comes through of the Levites to stand in place of the firstborn, but also the people in Israel realize that the firstborn are gods and they do redeem them by buying them back, the ones that the Levites aren't able to redeem because of their number. So all of this, again, it seems weird to us, but think of this this way. God is making logistical preparations of this massive number of people. And he's doing it in an orderly way because they're not an orderly society up until now. He's, he's starting the foundations from the beginning. So he's putting in place these practices that gets into what would seem like legal minutia or like accounting stuff, this whole redemption and tallying and this number and that. To us, it's like, unless you're an accountant or somebody that does auditing, this is just boring as all get out. But the purpose that served for them was a national purpose and a logistic purpose. However, within that, this is all part of the ongoing drama of Israel, which the reason it's in scripture is because it serves a theological purpose to show us these concepts of redemption, firstborn being dedicated to God, God's sovereignty over the process, the idea of clergy and laity and priests within the priesthood and all of these things that we pull from. So that's the reason, that's one of the reasons this is included in scripture. It doesn't give us all the details. It doesn't break down into person by person who's supposed to carry what and when this is taken down. And when. That stuff would have all been known at the time, but that didn't get included in here. So the things that got included got included for a reason. And the reason wasn't to just recreate this for the heck of it. The reason was to later Israel could look back on and one, check to make sure they were overall in line with what God had said in Torah. Two, to see his purposes through those actions. Remember, all of the actions, all of the symbols, all of the imagery of the Torah, of the Old Testament, are types, hints, and shadows of what will become concrete, ultimately, in the person of Jesus. So, there's 
the, the Levites have been, the census has been taken for their numbers for them to be the firstborn. Next week, there's going to be one more census taken, and that's going to be for the number of the Levites' army. That is, those who are actually doing the work, the, the ones who are doing the lifting, uh, rather than the women and children and the elderly and uh, all of that stuff. So there's one more census to go. God's preparations, though, are coming to completion, and Israel's getting ready to set out on their journey, which is what this is all leading to in a few chapters. So come back next week and we will pick it up then. Have a great week.